It's Friday, January 24th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Amazon is continuing to experiment with new ways to let you pay. The latest plan is to create checkout terminals that will let you pay with the palm of your hand. Customers would link their hands to their credit card information, and you can pay without ever having to pull out your phone or wallet. Credit card companies are in discussion with Amazon and have to figure out if they will be collaborators or competitors. Anna Maria Andriotis, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how big tech is trying to further integrate itself into your financial life. Next, we take a look behind the scenes at Rotten Tomatoes, the very popular review aggregation website that many people visit before they consider watching a movie or new show. Many in Hollywood have come to hate it, but Rotten Tomatoes has become such an asset for companies that want you to watch their movies. People respect the tomato meter. And if your movie is certified fresh, then chances are people will be willing to check it out. One third of Americans look at Rotten Tomatoes before seeing a movie. Simon Van Zylen Wood, contributor to Wired, joins us for how it all works. There's no algorithms, just curators pouring over reviews. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The payments companies, I call them like the incumbents, those that have been in the credit card, debit card payment space for many years are increasingly colliding. And the question is, are they going to be working together on payments or will the tech companies figure out a way to essentially cut them out? Joining us now is Anna Marie Andriotis, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Anna Maria. Great to be speaking with you. Amazon continues to try to make its way into all aspects of our lives. I kind of like this new idea. Uh, you know, they've been experimenting with a lot of different ways for how people can pay for stuff. You know, they have their Amazon Go store where you can just walk in and pick up your stuff and not have to pay, not have to stop off at a cashier. And one of the newest things that they're trying to do is to let people link their credit card information to their hands. So kind of like a biometric scan or something. And they want to set up these terminals where you just put your hand down there and pay for whatever you got. So I kind of like this. I know there's a lot of questions about privacy and, and things like that. But Anna Maria, tell us what's going on with Amazon on this. Amazon is testing terminals that would allow people to just pay with their hand. They wouldn't need to pull out a debit card, a credit card, a phone. The idea would be very simple that no matter what you have with you, if you forget your card at home, it doesn't matter because all you need to pay is your hand. It is in early stages. At this point, it is testing whether transactions would work this way with Visa, which is the largest card network in the U.S. It is also in discussions with a number of banks that issue credit cards, the likes of J.P. Morgan Chase, as well as Synchrony Financial and Wells Fargo. And essentially what it's trying to develop here is hardware that would be at the checkout location when people are at stores that would allow them to just pay by hand. And these conversations with these financial institutions are super important. Obviously, people bank with these other companies, et cetera, but they really all have to figure out if they're going to be competitors or collaborators on this whole thing. We talk about the big tech companies. Obviously, we're talking about Amazon, but Apple introduced their credit card. Google is rolling out checking accounts, and they have to know if they're going to compete or really try to work together to form the next big payment system. That 
that's the broader issue at play here, which is that tech companies and the payments companies, I call them like the incumbents, those that have been in the credit card, debit card payment space for many years are increasingly colliding. And the question is, are they going to be working together on payments or will the tech companies figure out a way to essentially cut them out and allow for payments in a way that doesn't require cards? Right now, at least with what Amazon is working on, there is a level of collaboration occurring between the card companies and the tech giant. That is in large part because Amazon wants to enable these terminals in a way that safeguards consumers' card accounts, meaning that if these terminals were to become reality, the account number that is essentially stored on the Amazon cloud that is linked to people's hands would not be the 16-digit number that is on the front of your card, but would instead be a tokenized type of version of the number. Those tokens can be only produced at this point by the card companies, the networks, um, for example, like Visa that it's talking to. I kind of like this idea of finding out this next way to make all these payments easier. And, you know, there's obviously the diehards, people that love to still only use cash. I think a lot of people have widely, obviously, adopted their cards. We have the mobile pay systems now across multiple platforms. But I like this idea of pushing it forward the next thing. We all see movies and whatnot like, oh, in the future, you know, you don't have to do this to pay for anything. And it's just kind of like this next step. So I do like that they're looking forward to see what is going to be the next big thing. But there is hesitance on the part of people. You know, they don't like to adopt some of these things, especially when it comes to privacy. Now you're giving over different sets of data to Amazon and these other companies. Just to address the next big portion of what you said, if these terminals were successful, became available and widespread in a bunch of stores, what they have the potential of doing in many ways is leapfrogging the mobile wallets, things like Apple Pay. Again, that's a big if if they become successful because while more people are using these wallets, the usage of them in the U.S. still remains pretty low, especially compared to just when people pull out their cards from their pocket. Secondly, in terms of consumer concerns surrounding data, So with regards to what would occur here with the terminals and the data usage, so certain pieces of information would come through from the terminal onto the Amazon cloud, things like where people shop and when they shop there. And essentially what's being envisioned is that there would almost be like a cloud wallet for people where it would have their hand, it would have the information pertaining to the data that's captured when they shop, and maybe potentially linking that data up to the Amazon Amazon.com shopping that people do. So essentially, this could give Amazon access to more data than they already have. And so what's key here in terms of what is changing at Amazon is the attempt to move from just the digital realm into the physical point of sale space. They've tried to make inroads in that way by getting Amazon Pay, their digital wallet, accepted Mm -hmm. at in-store locations. It hasn't been very easy in large part because merchants that are not owned by Amazon view Amazon as a competitor. So do they really want the Amazon branding at their checkout area? And do they really want Amazon knowing who's shopping at their stores and getting that type of data? Anna Maria Andriotis, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
There's about 50 people who work for the company total and about 12 people who we want to focus on. These people are called curators. What they basically do is just read movie reviews all day long, just like hundreds of hundreds of movie reviews. And their job is to decide if a movie review is positive or negative. Joining us now is Simon Van Zylen Wood, contributor to Wired. Thanks for joining us, Simon. Happy to be here. We're going to be talking about a fun topic here. We're going to talk about Rotten Tomatoes. It is the website that a lot of people go to before they go watch a movie, even watch TV. And everybody knows, you know, a fresh rating is the little red tomato and the rotten rating is the little green splat that's out there. It's funny because I've been using Rotten Tomatoes for a long time now just to say, oh, you know, do I want to see this movie? Do I not? But I still never really always understood exactly how it works. So let's start there, Simon, because you spent some time with the good people there at Rotten Tomatoes to see how everything goes and get a behind the scenes look. Let's start off at the top, though. How does Rotten Tomatoes actually work? How do they grade movies? A lot of people use it, myself included, and just sort of check fresh rotten, should I see this movie? And I'm not really sure that that many regular users have any idea how it works. (laughs) And that's sort of why I did this. I've sort of been obsessed with them forever. Like, who are these people? How do they do this? And I do trust them. I check them on all kinds of websites, Fandango, you know, when I go to the movies, AMC, they're everywhere. So it it was almost like I was just curious for myself and then got to make an article out of it. So anyways, they let me come and hang out and I basically watched over their shoulders Here's what happens. Basically, Rotten Tomatoes is run by human beings. There's no algorithm. There's no robots. There's no computerized scores. There's about 50 people who work for the company total and about 12 people who we want to focus on. These people are called curators. What they basically do is just read movie reviews all day long, just like hundreds of hundreds of movie reviews. And their job is to decide if a movie review is positive or negative, if it's fresh or rotten. And then the way that the score gets calculated is they just add up every single movie review that exists for a movie. So with a movie like Joker, which was huge, there's like over 500 movie reviews. Right. And there's only a handful of these people. There's so many people now devoted to TV, which is a growing section and a whole other subject. There's only a handful of people even reading these movie reviews. So you've got like three or four people total reading through hundreds of reviews, deciding if they're positive or negative. And then the total percentage of positive reviews that were deemed fresh is the score. Yeah. So for Joker, since we're on it, which is like, I think they've got like a 69 or something percent rating. That means that 69% of those 500 plus reviews were deemed to be positive by a bunch of human beings in Rotten Tomatoes' offices. And what I did is I just watched them like read through those reviews and then we argued about whether they were fresh or rotten. And it's interesting too, because using this metric, the way they go through it, it really doesn't allow for nuance in a review, which you read an individual review. Someone might say the film overall was crap, but the acting was really good or so-and-so actor was like the star but overall the film was crap that would just get a rotten review there so this metric doesn't allow for some of that nuance but still people do tend to trust it a lot and i guess generally agree with it you hit the nail on the head with the lack of nuance what's interesting about that is that the reason why that doesn't come across is because there's this kind of veneer of numerical accuracy right So you see like a 76 or a 34, and that looks kind of official, like, oh, that must have come from somewhere. Like, you don't just get 34 out of nowhere. But you're right. It might mean that it was just a bunch of really, really unnuanced reviews getting collated together. And you're right. There's no middle tomato. There's no, like, overripe, (laughs) underripe, disgusting, tasty. Like, it's just fresh or rotten. So I would say almost every movie review is like this, which really begs this question of, like, if every single movie review has some nuance to it, but every single Rotten Tomatoes review of a review has no nuance to it. Are these scores completely meaningless, which is sort of what I try to figure out. 
They also have the audience score, which it's kind of more of a Yelp-like thing. You know, anybody can yeah. really get on there and submit a, one of these scores. There's actually a shocking number of people who just go onto the site and just rate movies after, or maybe even during movies. So, like, it's got pros and cons. So the tomato meter, yeah, that's like the crown jewel. If, like, studios are advertising their movies as fresh, they're going to stick the tomato meter up on billboards. The audience meter, the pro, ironically, is it has more nuance than the tomato meter because you can rate on, like, a one to five scale. The con is that who the heck are these people? And often with superhero and comic movies, your listeners won't be surprised to hear there are trolls who get on there and just tank a movie score if they think it's just a violation of what they think the comic book should be. So there were some trolling problems in 2018 and 2019 when the Marvel Comics Studios started coming out in movies like Captain Marvel and Black Panther that were like too diverse for certain diehards. They would just tank the audience scores, which meant that if you relied on the audience scores, and some people do, you didn't really know if that was accurate or not. So Rotten Tomatoes ends up earlier this year sort of addressing this problem in a couple ways. One thing they did is they don't allow people to rate movies before the movie comes out anymore. Number two, there's this new thing called the verified audience, which is kind of complicated and I'm not sure it's going to work or not, but basically you can prove that you saw a movie and you get filtered into this verified system. Those are the two things they did and it's unclear if it's had a result yet. Those are the nuts and bolts of how it all works, but really the site has seen just a ton of growth. As we've been saying, a lot of people do go and they respect the scores there. And what's kind of happened is they're kind of hated by Hollywood in a sense because a review can really tank a movie in that sense of it, but has become such an asset to companies that want you to go watch movies. As you said, if somebody has a great score, a fresh score, they're going to put that on the billboard. And even with all their content partners and things like that, Fandango, you know, if you get a movie on Google Play, DirecTV, iTunes, they incorporate the little Rotten Tomato meter there on those websites. So it's everywhere now. It's a really good marketing tool for content platforms, whether that's streaming or renting services or the chains themselves. What's problematic there is two things. I mean, they're owned by Fandango, which is the nation's biggest ticketing app. So Fandango has a vested interest in you going to see movies, which means it's ultimately a promotional tool. And if you license out that tomato meter, you can use it any way you want. So AMC theater chains, they only show you tomato meters for movies that are 75% and up. So if you go and you see um, the Charlie's Angels reboot, Uh there's just no tomato meter. And so you're more probably likely, I think, to see a movie with no meter next to it than to see a movie with a big splat next to it. So it's kind of manipulatable in that way. But yeah, there's this love-hate. Studios will blame Rotten Tomatoes for their bad movies. And honestly, it's probably just that the movies are bad. But then (laughs) there's no better good housekeeping mark of approval than having a fresh tomato on your TV ad. So it's just in that way, it's just become inescapable. And I think that the tiny team that runs them are super underrated in terms of how powerful they are in Hollywood. And that's why it was fun to actually embed with them. And they'd never let a reporter do that before. Tell us a little bit more about the time that you spent there with the Rotten Tomatoes people, kind of just seeing how they operate day to day. And you were talking about how they're reading a ton of reviews for whatever movie they're going to work on at that point. What publications are they relying on for this? Because now a review is everywhere. You know, there's all these major papers have reviews. People are doing podcasts. How do they narrow down these reviews? I'll start with what they don't do. You can't just tweet a review. You can't just Facebook a review. It can't be anywhere. But basically, there are now several thousand publications or individuals on Rotten Tomatoes who are, quote, tomato meter approved critics. 
So yeah, they're on YouTube, they have podcasts, and then they write for traditional publications, New York Times, LA Times, Washington Post, Slate, AV Club, you name it. But basically, almost everybody is accepted at this point. If you're just a random guy or woman who writes for like an accepted publication, and you're not even a film critic, you're automatically included in the tomato meter. So at this point, there are, I think, 4,500 people and or publications who wow. are tomato meter approved. A lot of them are just going to be bad at reviewing movies. There's no way that there's that many good movie critics in the country. Most people, if they read critics at all, probably have a handful of favorites. I encountered a lot of horrible movie critics. If you go to a movie page on Rotten Tomatoes, you can just go and read all the reviews individually, which is a cool resource. And then you find people who are basically writing for their own website. Some of these people have very questionable skill. They've diversified their pool, which is great. There are more young people, more people of color, more women than there used to be. But there's also a lot of randos who I candidly like don't trust at all. <laughs> so, so anyways, they're going through all of them and they have a hard job. I mean, I like these people a lot. I got to spend time with them and they're kind of who you'd expect or want to be running Rotten Tomatoes. They're film nerds, they're film buffs, they know everything about movies, they're passionate about movies, and they love reading through these old reviews that they're finding or new reviews that they're finding. But I think they're kind of overworked. I've tracked down a former Rotten Tomatoes employee who left after a year, and she was telling me that Rotten Tomatoes curators were expected to hit 200, 300, sometimes up to 400 reviews a week curated. That basically means you're just powering through dozens of reviews an hour with little time to think about it. And so often critics think that their movies have been mislabeled, misreviewed, which wouldn't be surprising at all. That It's sort of pedal to the metal. What's the minimum number of reviews that are needed to get a tomato meter reading on a single movie? If you have five reviews or more, I think you're in the tomato meter. So it's also funny because some indie filmmakers, like really, really small budget filmmakers, will be at two or three reviews. Uh They don't even care if their reviews are positive or negative. They would rather have five horrible reviews than none because just getting on the site means so much for publicity. Wow. I mean, it's just an interesting look uh, to see how this uh, site operates. And as you mentioned, really don't have a big staff and Uh, when you narrow it down to the people that are actually curating these reviews, it's even less than you might think. And the the site has just kind of become so powerful in that sense, where people do trust it and companies want this uh, stamp of approval. And it's just, uh, it's crazy how this thing has all worked out. I would say one thing, I was talking to a film critic at New York Magazine, and she had a really good frame for understanding Rotten Tomatoes. And it's that a Rotten Tomatoes score isn't so much a mark of the movie's quality. It's a mark of consensus. But what I mean by that is that basically a kind of slightly positive review is treated exactly the same as a rave review. So a movie that a lot of critics love this year, like Parasite, is at a 99. But a movie last year that people liked a fair amount, but probably wasn't you know, the greatest movie of all time, pick any of the Marvel movies, for example, are often 95, 96, 97. Obviously, or at least in my opinion, those movies are totally different caliber. But the consensus that you're seeing is that that's a consensus that that was an an enjoyable movie, according to critics. It doesn't mean either movie was a 99 out of 100. It just means 99 out of 100 reviews said it was better than 50%. And that's exactly why that number probably works. You might love it or you might kind of like it, but you're probably going to like it. And boom, then it becomes a good movie for you to go watch. There's a lot of great inflation right now for various reasons that have or have not to do with Rotten Tomatoes. And 
if the whole point, because they're owned by Fandango, is to use it as a marketing tool, if you want to be suspicious about the fact that the average tomato meter scores go up and up and up every year, which they do, it is true that they do. It's not because it's a conspiracy. It's just because, I don't know, maybe critics are getting softer or maybe there's so many reviewers out there now that a lot of them are fanboys. But there's just a lot more positive reviews and it gets harder to wade through and figure out what's really a good review. Simon Van Zylen Wood, contributor at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure, my pleasure. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.